everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. Money. Like the TV show. <laughs> Creepy. Is that a TV show? Yay. It was. It is definitely a TV show. When and was it a TV show? Fairly uh, recently. Within the last decade. Within the last decade, definitely. I'm going to look it up right now. Like before, and she's... before or after the Kira Knightley King Arthur came out? I think after. Okay. And we just have to say that related to that, we must dedicate this episode to our dear friend Kasha, who is obsessed with the Merlin television show. <laughs> its biggest fan. Yes. Kasha Edwards-White. This episode is for you. Merlin was a TV series from 2008 into 2012. Huh, there you go. Years. So that was after the movie then, right? Yeah. Are you assuming that Kasha is like one of very few fans or? Yes. But also the biggest fan. <laughs> what What opera content are we talking about that is Merlin related? Okay, okay, okay. So we found for all of you lovely listeners mm-hmm. the most obscure of operas by a composer that not a lot of people know about but is actually kind of important in the grand scheme of music history. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's what, that's what people say. So his name is Isaac Albanese mm-hmm. and his full name being Isaac Emmanuel Francisco Albanese e Pasquale. Um, e and he Pasquale. was... <laughs> yes, he was born in 1860 and died in 1909. He was a Spanish composer born in Spain. And the reason why he's incredibly important is because he's kind of credited with being one of the first people to integrate folk idioms of the Spanish culture into art music. So he wrote a lot of music for classical guitar for a piano, for symphonies, that type of thing. And then became, like, pretty popular. I still so, don't know what the tie-in is, though, with Merlin. Okay, hold hold Calm on. Calm down. So, <laughs> Guys, it's hard being the only one that doesn't know what's going on. You could do some research. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have the whole internet at your disposal, Kyle. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Okay, so he's born in Spain. Uh, At a very young age, he becomes known as a child prodigy playing the piano, and he actually passed all of the entrance exams to study at the Paris Conservatoire uh, at the age of seven, but was considered too young, so he was not allowed in. Did they, like, defer his enrollment until he was older, or they were just like, no? I think they were just like, no, you're too young. And then (laughs) it seems like he didn't have the happiest of childhoods because Mm. apparently by the age of 12 he tried to run away quite a few times to the point where he actually became a stowaway on a ship bound for cuba oh (laughs) so yeah so he ends up like traveling as like a Mm b-tweenager to cuba (laughs) he goes to the u.s he get makes it to new york and san francisco i want to be in america America. (laughs) oh leonard bernstein oh no so he ends up going to liverpool london he ends up going to germany and 
by the age of 15, he gains this like reputation as a piano virtuoso major concert performer. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait. So, so he, he went to Cuba and then to the At the US. age of 12, he hid on a ship bound for Cuba. And then he Spain. got to New York. Like via Cuba? He, I think he went Cuba, like all over the U.S., ends up in New York. From New York, he goes on to Liverpool and to England, mm-hmm. that Dang. kind of thing. And eventually, like, ends up uh, back in Europe. And so he Good goes Good for him. To... He must be a smart dude. Yeah. yeah. He went to Leipzig for a little while. He went to Brussels for a little while. He went all over the place. Um, he actually really wanted to study with Franz Liszt. So at one point, he, like, goes to Budapest to study with Liszt, not knowing that Liszt had already left to live in Weimar by that point. Oh, shit. So, <laughs> like, gets to Budapest. He's like, where's Franz? And like, he probably Liszt? should have checked that. Liszt? Yeah. Liszt? Liszt? Where are you? Where are you, Liszt? I don't oh, know why wait, we're he's... giving him a German I'm... accent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is Spanish, so... not German. <laughs> so he ends up going to London, and then when he's in London, he's his concert career by that point had kind of petered out a little bit. And so he starts composing and like tinkering with different types of composing. And this draws the attention of an extremely wealthy but extremely eccentric banker slash poet mm-hmm. by the name of Francis Money Coots. <gasps> Money Coots. Money Coots. I'm, assume, I'm assuming he's super rich. I guess so. He was the fifth baron of Latimer. Was he Ooh. British? Was he British? Uh, yes, he was English British. Yes, Money Coots, and so not to be confused with Scottish with British Scottish. or yeah. any other kind of British. None of those yes. Scotch or bastards. the Irish or the Welsh. He's <laughs> English. You didn't even hear what I said, Elspeth. I did. I'm ignoring it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably for the best that I do that. Right. Go right. on, Money Coots, that you English know bastard. You know I'm with the the Scottish. With the independence. Right, yes. Independent Scotland. Right. Can't can't happen soon enough. True. That's true. We we remember the battle at Culloden. (laughs) (laughs) Sing me a song. If anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, you must go watch the show Outlander. <laughs> when do you think his family changed their middle name to like money hyphen coots? Because that's not an actual thing. Like somebody uh, made the conscious decision to change their last name to money coots. Yes, we must have when money think, in our when name. Do you think, when do you think that happened? The cooses became the money cootses. I'm going to say 1847. Solid. The barons of Latimer made a conscious decision to hyphenate their name. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to money coots, not just none of this coots, coots bullshit. You can't just be Francis Coots or Francis Money. You can be Francis <laughs> Money Coots. Money Coots. Yes. Okay. okay. Anyhow, what happened, so they, what happened they they with met. Mr. Money Coots? Okay, so Mr. Money Coots is this eccentric banker, poet. He is uh, has absurd amounts of money. And he becomes absolutely enamored with <laughs> Isaac Albanese's music. Wait, before we go on, should we listen to something that he wrote? 
Yes, let's listen to some of his piano music since he was a, a big pianist, piano virtuoso, a pianist, and yeah. a pianist. Yes, a pianist. So he wrote. Um, he actually wrote quite a bit of music for piano that has then been transcribed for guitar. Mm-hmm. So oh. the arranger that did a lot of this was Francisco Terega. And so that transcribed a lot of his music for guitar. Okay. So we'll listen to something, a little piano-y, guitar-y excerpt by Isaac Albanese. Money Coots is enamored with him, and Money Coots, although being like a banker and financier, fancies himself a librettist. Oh no. (laughs) Money Coots makes Isaac Albanese an offer he couldn't refuse, Mm -hmm. where he says, I will pay you like a, a, a stipend enough to live on if you become exclusive to me as an opera composer. Because I have this idea for a trilogy of operas based on the story of Merlin and (gasps) King Arthur. Because apparently there was like a trend of all things King Arthur in that era, the Arthuriana of Hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. So he commissions these three operas, a trilogy. He wants the first one to be about Merlin. He wants the second one to be about Lancelot. And he wants the third one to be about Guinevere. Okay. Um, and Albanese was actually very obsessed with Wagner generally. So his goal was to make the Merlin trilogy or the King Arthur trilogy uh, sound as close to like the Wagnerian ideal as possible. So you want it to be like the English ring cycle. Yes. Because this opera is in English, right? Yes, it is in English. Yeah. So. It, the librettist is English, and so he wanted it to be the equivalent of the English Ring of the Nibelungen mm-hmm. type thing. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Nibelungen! Yes. Um, so the way that they structured... So they had three operas in the pipeline, but Albanese died before he could even complete the first one. Oh. So we only have like the prelude or he only heard the prelude performed in his lifetime, but he actually wrote a lot of the score before he died. It was just never performed in its entirety. And so the, the plot of the first 
opera, the Merlin opera, which is the only one that really was finished in any sense of the word. Uh, in Act One, it's the whole story of the sword and the stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's also where Mor- Morgan Le Fay lays claim to the throne on behalf of her son, Mordred, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why are you confused about this? Well, I'm just not sure if I'm pronouncing <laughs> it correctly. I'm not familiar with any part of or this Someone part of the has story. not seen the TV series. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm only in like the third episode. Give me time. Okay. Okay. Then oh, Act Two. Mordred. Mordred. Okay. There's a so, TV series. We've ta- we just talked about this. Oh, oh, you mean the Merlin <laughs> TV series? Yes. I thought you meant a different like. Are you King here Arthur. right now? I don't know what's going on with you. I'm in another world. Mm. Three glasses deep. Okay. Right. <laughs> a bottle of wine. Yes. Okay. So, act two. Merlin and Arthur are in the throne room and they receive Morgan, Mordred, and Pelinore. Um or Pelinor, who were captured Pelinor were captured in the rebel wars. Arthur grants them pardon, but Morgan and Mordred are already hatching new plots. Act three, they're in a forest. Uh, Arthur sees Guinevere. He asks Merlin to arrange the marriage. Um, And then there's some kind of dance for Merlin, and he ends up giving up his wand. And then he ends up being in a cave with a bunch of gnomes where they are trying to steal gold. And uh, apparently this doesn't go very well, and Morgan proclaims that he is triumphant in this. Um, and I think <laughs> that's the end of the opera. Random. Did they, yeah. they Did they write the story out for all three operas? Or just no, the one? only the first one. Oh, okay. Uh, although the librettist, Money Coots, did have like sketches of the whole thing worked out, what he wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. So I Good think the libretto exists. But Good the music, the music does not. It only exists for the first one, and Albanese only heard the prelude in his lifetime. But then, since then, you know, one hundred or so years later, people decided it would be a really great idea to actually bring this opera to the stage for the first time in its entirety. And I'm going to give you three guesses to guess who elected themselves to sing King Arthur. <gasps> I know. Elected Kyle. themselves. Wait, can I have the or exact year? Or threw his hat into the ring. Was to it like 98? 2000. 2000. Somebody yeah. who, A tenor. S- who sang in the ring. Pavarotti. Nope. Mm. Placido. Placido wanted to sing King Arthur, or got of the role of King he Arthur. Did. Oh, jeez. Um, and Marcelo Alvarez sang Merlin. Um Jane Henschel sang Morgan Le Fay, and Anna Maria Martinez was Nivion. And I'm pretty sure that there was another production where Ava Martin sang Morgan Le Fay. So this performance actually happened. It did happen, yeah. And and there's been a lot of performances since then of this. So if you look on YouTube, there's actually a lot of clips of Merlin, the opera, by Albanese. Shall we listen to one now? Yes. So I'm actually going to save the prelude for playing out but we should listen to one of the arias of morgan le fay because it's like a big soprano role Mm -hmm. and it's actually pretty fantastic so here's a little excerpt from merlin the opera
Now, in my opinion, and everything that I've read about this has sort of backed it up, that the music is actually pretty excellent, but the libretto is like real shitty Gilbert, <laughs> like Gilbert and Sullivan, but with like no wit or charm behind it whatsoever. Just like garbage. Yes, oh, so I bummer. actually have a quote by someone who like critiqued the libretto mm-hmm. in the time period or or when this came out, I guess, when it came to light. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what time, but it says, Money Coot's text would take pride of place in any collection of the world's worst opera librettos. Oh, shit. <laughs> it, it is couched in an achingly archaic old English and relentlessly rhymed. It must be hard to sing lines like, When flowerets of the marigold and daisies are enfolded, and wingless glow-moth stars of love and glimmer all the glades with anything approaching a straight face. <laughs> can you read that? That Can you read that again? The line? Yeah. When flowerets of the marigold and daisy are enfolded, okay. and wingless glow-moth stars of love and glimmer all the glades. And glimmer. You know what else? It just adds a little bit of extra humor to that is thinking of somebody like Placido singing that line. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, Just, we should play out is to the three tenors version of um, Jingle Bells. <laughs> <laughs> Dashing through the snow. It's really funny, but I mean, God bless them. It's sung so beautifully. Yeah, but it's right, funny. Right. It's so funny. Oh. Yeah. So Merlin. Merlin. That's the thing. So actually, it was performed in its entirety for the first time in 2003. Oh, okay. Yeah. And was that with that cast? With Placido? No, that, uh, that was with... David Wilson Johnson singing Merlin, Abra Martin singing Morgan Le Fay, Stuart Skelton singing King Arthur. Oh, hey. Uh, Carol Vaness singing Nivian, and Angèle Odena singing Mordred. And where um, was that performed? I'm not sure where, but it was conducted by Jose de Acebio. I think it was the Teatro Real in Madrid. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Good for them. Maybe, but there was oh, there was a studio recording before that of okay. the whole thing with Placido singing King Arthur. It's probably successful because English is not the first language there, so maybe they didn't understand <laughs> like the garbage that was going on. Why the libretto was so right. horrible. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm going wonder... to, and I want everyone else to do it as well. Try to use the word and glimmer in a sentence in your real life. <laughs> and glimmer. And glimmer. What about glow moth? Or a glow moth. Glow moth. Glow, yeah, glow what's moth the, stars. What's the definition of glow moth? I have no I clue. Know. Huh. You should Can ask you... one of the money cootses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're still around. I'm sure they're the, still around. Right. The old the, money coots family. The money coots dynasty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So do we know, is this opera slated anywhere near us? In the, <laughs> Not in the near that future? I know of. I think it had a very short revival period, and that was kind of it. You mean other than the studio recording done by Opera After Dark? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I should I should make a correction to drop in before the clip. Morgan Le Fay is a contralto role, Ooh. and Nivion is the soprano role. Okay. So we'll find something from one of these to play for you. I'm not sure which one I had that I watched. I was felt like a soprano, but okay. Let's listen mm. to it now. It's a 
Arthur, Arthur, Guinevere, Arthur, Lancelot, Where is Lancelot? Where is Lancelot? Do some shit, please. So this is an opera that, after it was completed, it took 101 years before it was ever performed. Correct. Yeah. And it's probably never going to be performed again. Because a lot of it was lost. Mm -hmm. It was not performed in his lifetime. A lot of it was lost, and then it was, like, reconstructed afterwards. Okay. So, but yes. Essentially, it took over 100 years for it to reach the stage. Crazy. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. Well, anything else? That's Merlin's beard, as we've had it? Yes. Merlin's opera. Merlin's beard. And Super, Super random. (laughs) <laughs> pretty random but i feel like you know if king arthur becomes all the rage again it might be revived again right you never know hey um, anything that gets a a performance by somebody like placido domingo that's pretty it's not pretty nothing sub- all right that's pretty substantial yeah it's pretty awesome so i think that that certainly got a lot of attention when it came out in the early 2000s mm-hmm. um and I think that it's probably, the music is probably beautiful. Well, we listened to some of it, but it's probably, if not for the horrible libretto, it might have been more popular. Yeah. Because yeah. it does have a super Wagnerian sound to it. So. And will, yeah, you, you, remind me, will you remind me of our composer's name? <laughs> the com- Do you not know? The composer's <laughs> name, his full name is Isaac Manuel Francisco Albanese y Pasquale. Oh yes, Pasquale. known colloquial yes. co- the, or colloquially as Isaac Albanese. Huh. And money so what, Coots. So what, <laughs> no, Money Coots is the librettist. <laughs> I know. I know. I just like to say Money Coots. You know the classic yeah. duo of Albanese and Money Coots. <laughs> yes. So Composer what? librettist duo. Did Write you music, say, solving crimes. Did you? <laughs> did you already say what happened to Albanese? He died. He died. So he actually got um, <laughs> yeah, but how did he Bright's die? disease. Bright's disease. And what is that? Around nineteen hundred, like he was diagnosed. A kid, it's like a kidney disease. Mm-hmm. Oh bummer. Yeah. Yeah. So he actually was started having issues with this around nineteen hundred, but then he didn't actually die until nineteen oh nine. So he was like suffering with this for almost a decade. Mm. What um, might have been? Yes, and he still composed during that time period. He was married to one of his students. Of course. Uh, like Always. they all are. Right. right. That's how you meet ladies when you're a composer. You have mm. students. And Teach Rosina Giordana. He had three children, um, Blanca, Laura, and Alfonso. Hmm. And, yeah. So, I mean, a tra- he died around just a few days before his 49th birthday. So he did not live a long life, but he was pretty prolific in the time that he did live, and like really saw the world, stowed away on a ship, and then traveled all over Europe. Seriously, age so. twelve, living the dream, all over the U.S., yeah. all over the world, at a time where people did not really do that. And he really brought back a lot of the music of Cuba and of Spain into classical music. Like he, he was one of the first composers to like fuse those folk traditions with classical styles, and so he kind of laid the groundwork for people like Villalobos, who mm-hmm. we will. Talk about in the future because he's awesome. He's mm. awesome. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Well, before we play out, uh, just a reminder to everybody 
to please go on iTunes or go wherever else it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Because that would be great. Yes, please. A nice like a, one. Like a super yes. positive one with five stars <laughs> in which you tell us how much you love this podcast. That's specifically what we're looking for. How much you love this podcast. Yeah. Yes. So much. And, and its, hosts, its hosts as well. Mm-hmm. And That's these cool. hosts are... <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> Ooh, nice segue. Naomi. And Elspeth. And this has been... Opera After Dark. After Dark. Monicoots. Bye, everyone. What are we playing out to? We're going to play out to the prelude of Merlin, which is the only part of the opera that the composer Albanese ever heard in his lifetime. Here it is, folks. to put those together. Monikoots. Chooses a name. Monikoots. Like Monikoots. Yeah, that's crazy. The Monikootses? I don't know.